Hi folks, Jack Spirico here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial free versions of past episodes. Podcasts blast from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And today, folks, we are rewinding back to February of 2012. This was originally episode 836, Understanding Multisystem Dependence, and did first air on February the 8th, 2012. As I was getting ready to put stuff together for this week, where I'm occupied with TSP 2022, I got an email from somebody. I don't remember who. This was about a month ago as I was getting planned for this uh, this this series of rewinds. And I kind of made a note about this. And so when I made them, I went and this was the one I wanted to lead off with. And I remember it was a female. And she said that when she listened to this old episode, she thought, oh, my God, it could be right now that this is, that this is exactly what's going on in the world today. And she said it was so, it was so much like you were looking into the future with it. So I went back and actually, usually when I do a rewind, I don't necessarily re-listen to the whole show myself. I did re-listen to this one, uh, again, it was about a month ago when I did, and I made a few notes about it, and I thought I would include them in your uh, your new intro here for you. One was I did have a couple things in it that my view has changed on. Um, big time would be my view on cars and debt as a whole. I was much more uh, anti-debt Nazi, I guess, at the time that this was recorded. It was kind of how I came out of the gate with it. And I guess I'm maybe less less that, I, that I've changed and more that I'm a little bit more open publicly with the way I talk about debt. And, and here's what I mean. I've always been for intelligent use of debt. I just know most people don't do it. Uh, it's just easier to convince yourself that it's okay and do really dumb things with debt. So I also, if many of you guys know, I was a person that kept snakes a lot a long time ago. I was kind of an amateur herd pathologist, snake breeder, etc. And we would always tell people, never keep two snakes in the same cage. Bad. Don't do it. And then those of us who, who kept a lot of animals, we always kept more than one snake in a cage. And there's just certain things that you have to do when you keep two snakes in one enclosure. Uh, that are a little bit different, a little bit require a little bit more doing everything exactly right. Keep like you know one from eating the other one, or, or some things can go wrong. I'll just leave it at that. Uh, and it, it matters what kind of snakes, what breed of snakes, what size of snakes, and, and some other things. So it's just easier to say don't than to try to teach somebody that doesn't know the first thing about it how to do it. And, and over the years, I've gotten a lot looser with the way I explain using debt under the right circumstances, and specifically with cars where you guys know I've leased several vehicles at this point, and, and that always comes down to an economic decision. That comes down to an economic, I put it in a spreadsheet, whichever one costs me least money across time and gives me more value is the one that I do. Um, so there's some changes there, but there's some stuff that really will hit uh, in this episode hard as to what's going on right now. Oil and war your electric bill, and pandemic. And I wanted to talk a little bit about the pandemic stuff in this episode. In this episode, I'm talking about all the things that could go wrong in society if we're hit with a pandemic. And in this instance, I'm talking about a pandemic 
where the pandemic itself, the illness, is the actual problem. And, of course, what we got was a place that the illness was never worth the reaction, but because we reacted to our pandemic as though it had a high lethality rate, and the government lost its minds and went crazy and went fascist all over the world, shut down supply chains, did all the things that you might have to do in a real serious pandemic, we got the same result. Because, as I always say, it's not the disaster, it's the reaction to the disaster that's the bigger problem. And because of this, when COVID started, back in March of 2020, February, March of 2020, I said there was less to worry about than there ended up being to worry about. Because I, I knew what I was looking at from the data that was coming from reports on the illness, and I knew history, and I knew what we had going on, and... I wrote an article. I wrote an article that I published on March. Let me make sure I get this exactly right. March, I think, 11th. March 11th, 2020. And the title of this article was What We Mean When We Say COVID 2019 Is Like the Flu. Now, you got to think about how early this is in the game. March 11th, 2020. People are freaking out in Washington State. That's in New York City. That's about it. The next day was my wife's birthday. We went to Fredericksburg with some friends, and we had a blast of a weekend, and people were getting tore up in the outdoor bars and stuff, and we had a blast. And it was right before they started the whole two weeks to flatten the curve and shut everything down. That's how early in the game it is. And I'm not going to read the article to you on the air, but if you go read it, you're going to see that I was 95% accurate, maybe more like 98%. 98% accurate, redneck hippie duck farmer in March about the illness itself and the progression of the illness and what was going to happen and why it looked like it did. I'll read just fact one from it. It's a short, short paragraph. Here are the facts you have to ignore to keep the hysteria high. One, fact one, new viruses always infect the people most susceptible to them first, making the death rate and hospital rate inflated at the onset of any outbreak. This also makes the contagion rate appear higher than it is in reality. Tell me that's not what happened. Tell me that's not what happened. I mean, I, I, I would encourage you. I'll put a link in the show notes today. Go read this article. Go read this article. And then this is what I want you to take home from it. Because last week, before we let up to, to, to this week of rewinds, it was coming out that there's people in the whole... Uh, Uh, world that have been on board this whole mandating vaccines, mandatory lockdown, social, all the way through it, they were attacking people. They destroyed people's lives. Now they want amnesty. We all said some things we, 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 we didn't mean. We didn't know. How could we have known? Okay, this is my point. I'm not that effing smart. I wrote this article before we were even really into this. And I got it all right. I'm not a doctor. I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not a scientist. But I'm a person that can look at and interpret data and, and look at and understand history. And if I got this right, it means that everybody that got it wrong knew they were wrong and wanted to do the things they did anyway or chose willful ignorance over actually looking at data. Remember what was going on. By the time this, they had real-time death counters on our television. You remember that? 
You're sitting there watching the news and you're seeing the number of dead just climb in real time. Where the hell did that come Where did it? Not only where did it come from, where did it go? It's just here one day and it just got rid of it the next day because it wore itself out. No amnesty. No, 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 no. Retribution. Retribution. Just some things to think about. Now, the episode itself is really not, not about pandemics specifically. It's about how systems are multi-systemic. That we don't have a system, we have systems. And in this show we go through the financial system, the debt system, the distribution system, huh? Like fuel shortages and supply chain crunches, you know, the energy system the health system, the welfare system, and the military-industrial complex system. Yeah, I think this one's going to be pretty relevant to 2022, even though at this point it's over 10 years that we will travel to together in the past, right now as we rewind back to February 2012, And remember, guys, even though the rewinds are always non-commercial, you can always help us out by doing what? Your online shopping starting at tspaz.com, boosting us on a value-for-value -value app like Fountain FM, or joining the Member Support Brigade audience. So with that, we've got the housekeeping wrapped up. Let's, let's chat today about understanding what I call multi-system dependence. I, you know, here's the thing. I hear people all the time say stuff like, I want to be free of the system. I want to get free from the system. I want to be independent of the system. I don't want to depend on the system. And to me, there's a huge flaw in just saying that. I know it sounds great. It, I mean, what could possibly be wrong with saying I want to be independent of the system? The, the problem is that it, it, will, it lies to you. Is the best way I can put it. It sets the wrong tone because it's not a system. It's a, a series of interconnected systems. Some of the systems that I'm going to talk about today, the financial system, the debt system, the distribution system, the agricultural system, the energy system, the health system, the welfare system, and the military-industrial complex system. You're probably dependent on every single one of those. I know some of you are right now going, I'm not dependent on the debt system. Well, We'll, we'll examine that. Uh, you may not be highly dependent on it. You might say, I've never taken a dime of welfare in my life. We're going to examine that too. Because realize that unless you live in the middle of nowhere, you know, really do live in the middle of nowhere, you are part of a society. And what the society is dependent on, on at least some levels, you're dependent on as well. Um, and we'll examine that, but we'll also examine how free we can get. The big thing I need you to understand here, though, folks, is that when you say the system, it, it, it stops the mind at just believing, well, just that just means look after yourself. And it stops you from analyzing exactly how these things are interconnected, where your dependencies lie, and what the impact of failures of any one or several of these interconnected support systems would actually be. And that makes us lazy. And that means we don't work as hard. That means we don't become as independent. That means we don't become as prepared. And, and it's not that we're bad. It's just how the mind works. When you give the mind a singular versus a plural, it sees things very one-dimensionally. When I say the system, you think in a very one-dimensional space. You think linear. So my needs today in a straight line out, what are they? When you say systems... Then if you, if, you, if you mind map that in your mind's eye, if you could see a graphical representation, instead of seeing the word system, right? Try to do this right now. Try to visualize this. See in your mind right now a, a little square that says system floating in space out there in front of you and an arrow pointing from that system to you. 
And that's your dependence level, right? That one, the system. Okay, now, what I want you to realize is now see 20 boxes. And they're all floating in different spaces. Don't try to put words on them. It's too complicated. They're all just different colors. And then all of them have a line pointing in at you. That's what we're really dealing with. And that's far more complex. And in some ways, that's good. Because if, if we have just the, the first one, and that system fails... We lose everything that's, that comes into us. Where we have this multidimensional system, if one or two items fail, um, then we at least have some of the other ones still working. And it all depends on the size and the impact of the disaster because many of these systems are highly interdependent. So realize that all those boxes with arrows pointing at you, many of them have arrows pointing to and from each other as well. And when we start to analyze things at that level, it, it, if you're doing that, if you did that when I gave it to you, I guarantee you your mind is switched on at a higher level now than it was just five minutes ago. You know, I usually wake you up pretty good with, hey, this is Jack, you know, at the beginning and try to, so let's get excited. Let's talk about this stuff that's gloom and doom in an exciting way. And let's get, you know, I try to get you up. But now, now your mind should be engaged at a higher level. And that's what we have to look at is a systemic multi-headed monster instead of a single system so that the mind stays alert and aware. I want to review something that I've talked about a lot in the past before we go into these individual systems and how we can create some dependence from them because it's almost impossible today to create 100% independence from any of these systems, especially as a member of a society where other members are highly dependent on them and you're dependent on them to keep the peace, so to speak. Think, think about that. All right. But what I want to talk about first is, is, is threat probability and disaster impact. These are, these are things that I came up with, these terms, very, very early in the show to help explain something that everybody talked about but nobody made concise. Disaster probability is an inverse relationship between the number of people affected by a disaster and how likely you are to at some point in your life experience that disaster. So a, a, a massive disaster could be a comet striking the earth, extinguishing all life, a global extinction event, right? An ELE, right? LE, uh, extinction level event. Um, the probability that that will occur to you in your life is very, very low, but the impact scale, which is the other side, is very, very high. But if we sat around and prepared for that, there's not much to be done other than dig holes in the ground and decide we're going to live like a mole if it happens. Now, the thing is, if we prepared for the ultimate global disaster, we would be prepared for anything else. And that sounds great, except it's very expensive and it's not very practical. If we look at the other end of the spectrum, what is a disaster that affects one person or one family to where your neighbor might have empathy for you concern for you, but it doesn't really affect the temperature of the water in their pool or their bank account. What qualifies as that? Losing a job, death of a spouse or a child, death of both spouses with the child left behind. All right, Those are disasters for the family. Severe injury of one member of the family. Having your savings wiped out due to poor investing decisions. Anything else that can happen to that one family. That's just them. The probability that you will experience one of the things I've just said in your life is extremely high. Extremely high. Most people will. The only way you're not going to experience the death of a spouse is you go first. So in, in a two-parent uh, you know, two household, as long as you guys stay married, for the rest of your lives as you've promised, one of you will see the other one pass on. 
100% guaranteed. So it's 50-50 that it's going to be you right there. That's just one thing. Odds that some, you will, one of the family members will get fired during their life, very, very high. It's almost, there's almost no one that can say, that, especially a married couple, that neither one was ever fired from a job. Or if it wasn't a firing, it was a downsizing, or the company went tits up, or whatever. Almost everybody has dealt with a one-off level of, a, of, of this, this event. So these are the most probable uh, things to hit us. They're pretty easy to prepare for, and all the systems we're going to talk about today, like the financial system, debt system, distribution system, they play into why it hurts you, but they're still there. They don't shut down. As we look at threat probability, then we move to like a neighborhood level. This is a localized storm. This is a localized flood. This is some type of localized disaster. Uh, the probability that that's going to happen is a much bigger possibility than an, an extinction-level event or a global thermal nuclear war, or a global conventional war, or complete financial collapse of the entire global economic system, leaving it in total, complete decay with nothing left, the way that people fantasize about it when they write fan fiction, or an EMP. All of those things are less likely for you as an individual to experience than a neighborhood-level event. As we move out in the impact scale and the threat probability inverse relationship, now we look at, let's say, something that is a county level or a city level or a town level event that's not just your neighborhood. The probability you'll experience, it's actually lower than you'll experience something like a tree falling on your roof. But it's actually quite probable. So those are our first three layers, the individual, neighborhood, small, regional. And then we move to a large, regional, national, global. That's how we move down that scale. So while if we prepared for a global event right from the beginning, anything further down the scale would be covered, it's not practical or affordable. If we start down on the easy stuff, individual and family, simple practical stuff, guys, insurance, storing food. Storing food is huge for an individual disaster. Dad loses his job. There's 90 days worth of food in the pantry. We're not going to the grocery store until Dad gets a new job. See how, see how and immediately it pays off. The second you've, you've done it, it pays off. If you haven't done it and Dad loses his job, it, it's too late to do that. So doesn't it make sense that we prepare for a disaster in the order of probability? Because here's the reality. When we get prepared at the individual level very, very well, we button that up as best we can, and there are certain emotional components of that we just can't be prepared for. You can't be emotionally prepared to lose a spouse or a child. You can't. Everybody that's ever gone through it will tell you that you, you can't even understand the pain and numbness that, 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 that switch back and forth during the period of time. It's, it's almost impossible. Eventually, the body almost goes into a shock that saves you. You know, a, a, a numbing shock, and then you can slowly cope. It's almost like the body self-medicates when you're in that level of, of, of pain. But we can do the financial planning, right? We can do all of the stuff we do as preppers as well, and we can have a more stable situation where if somebody loses a spouse or a child, that they don't have to go back to work a day or two later when they're not mentally prepared yet, that they can take some time off. 
Then when we look at preparing for the neighborhood disaster, now we're doing things like storing water and more food and we're gardening and we're doing all these other things to make sure we're, we're starting to get some security into this as well. Right? That's part of individual, though. Being able to protect your family, you got to be able to protect your family if you're ever going to stand up and protect your neighborhood. And then we kind of start looking at it a little bit bigger. We put in more redundancy. We bring in generators, backup power systems, all this other stuff. We prepare for kind of the, the small to large regional stuff. By the time we've done that, now let's look at the other side of like a national or global uh, emergency. We're actually as almost as prepared as most people will ever be. We could keep tweaking it a little bit here and there for the rest of our lives, but now we've come in very, very gently. And that's so important that we think that way, especially when I'm about to go through the systems that we're dependent upon so we don't freak out, overreact, or obsess about one of them. See, one of my big problems with this show, Doomsday Preppers, they're coming out. You know, God, I hate that show. And I, folks, I've asked for your feedback on the, uh, on the video, YouTube video. And I've pretty much decided I have to do the video. I've had most people want a video. Uh, the people that don't, your concerns are heard. They're my concerns. They're why I asked the question. I am not concerned about being sued. Let them sue me. They'll make me famous in a good way. Because you, you want to sue me for telling the truth, fine. I know when I talked about doing that video, I sounded angry. I will not sound angry in the video. Or I will not say angry when I do the video. I'm just going to tell the story of what happened. I want people to know the truth. And here's the other thing. I'm getting some of you telling me not to go on the show and some of you telling me to go on the show. That's not a debate. I don't know if I was understood fully then. And this is not about me going on Doomsday Preppers. I'm never going to have anything to do with that show because of what I know to be true about it. The other reason I feel compelled I have to do the video now is that I'm getting a lot of people that haven't maybe heard recent episodes where I've talked about it sending me a link to the stories about it because they're like, I think you'll be interested in this. Like, it's a good thing. Uh, it's not a good thing. It's not a good thing when people lie about a group of people. It's not a good thing when we're presented in a false light. It's not a good thing when people that we know, some of the people that have been on the pilot or will be on the show, and we know these people and we know they're common sense good preppers, that they're painted in a way that doesn't make sense. It's not good. And someone needs to speak the truth, and I don't know of anybody else fit to do it, and somebody needs to tell the truth about the person producing the show. And what that person actually says when he's trying to get you involved. Someone needs to be able to say that, so I'm going to do that. But my problem with the show, if it was just a critique, if I didn't have any insider knowledge at all, would be that they always take people and say, I'm preparing for fill in the blank. I'm preparing for a solar flare. I'm preparing for a financial collapse. I'm preparing for bullshit. You don't prepare for events. You don't get to pick your disaster. And my fear, when I start breaking down the systems that we're dependent upon, like the financial system and the debt system, which are different, is that people will pick one or two of those and they'll obsess about it and they'll ignore the others, which is at your own peril. Because the whole point of disaster preparedness is that stuff happens. Shit happens. Things go wrong. And if, we, if we're going to accept that, by its very nature, we don't get to pick which system fails or even how. When people say I'm preparing for a financial collapse, my, my immediate response is, what kind? And they, well, they, deer in the headlights. Oh, man, what, what do you mean what kind? Isn't there only one kind? Oh, no, there's lots of financial collapses. We just had one. Just had one. Still in the middle of it, by the way. We're not quite recovered from it yet. 2008, boom, there it was. That was a financial collapse. How prepared were you for that? 
How well did your, 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 your gold and silver coins help you out? Unless you got really hard up and sold some. That might have worked for you. How'd that work out? How about all those guns? How about all the beans and bullets and band-aids that you got stored under the bed? How, how well did that help you in that financial collapse? How much money did you lose? Well, I took it hard. Oh, okay, really? So you're preparing for a financial collapse. If you were preparing for a financial collapse, when every indicator in the world was screaming, every alarm and whistle and bell was going, whoop, 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 it's about to blow up, it's about to blow up. Why did you let your money sit there and get, get hammered? Well, I wasn't prepared, I guess. Well, you weren't. I'm not putting you down for that. But that same person still has their money structured the same way. Or they just converted it to gold and they buried it in a can or something. Ugh. You know? So what if we have another financial collapse that looks like that? Are you prepared for that? And the answer is probably no. Are you preparing for a financial collapse like Argentina experienced? Or are you preparing for what's going on in Greece right now? They're different. Do you realize they're different? Are you preparing for inflation or deflationary type of collapse? Well, it's inflation. Are you sure? Are you sure? Do you really do you really want to tell me that's the case? How much deflation on major assets occurred in this recent collapse? Well, there's this inflation. Really? Uh, how much inflation is there in the housing market? Uh, used vehicles. How much inflation is there there? That RV or camper that you bought like me when you shouldn't have. How, how, how much how much inflation is that experienced? Uh, cars depreciate. Well, yeah, but what, what, the, the equivalency. Five-year-old, good shape, used car, 75,000 miles on it today versus the same type of vehicle from four years ago. How much inflation has there been on like for like? None. There's deflation. See, we're in a really bad way right now because we have consumer-level inflation and major asset deflation at the same time simultaneously. Right? The same time. That's redundancy, right, at work. Same time simultaneously. Anyway, that's from Neil being here with his British crap. Simultaneous. Anyway, uh, you know, so what do you mean you're preparing for a financial collapse? Well, what they mean is I'm preparing for society to break down due to a financial collapse. But that's not always how a financial collapse looks. So let's start going through some of these. And let's, 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 uh, let's start out with the financial system and how people are dependent on it. And I want to make sure we draw a clear delineation here between the financial and the debt system because the financial system is debt-based. But... For practical purposes, from a consumer level, utilization level, there, there's two separate systems at play here. The financial system is basically, you're dependent on an income. I mean, that's, that's, as, that's as simple as I can make it. You're dependent on an income. And the reason I have to separate it from debt is because even if you have no debt, you're dependent on an income. I'm dependent on an income. It's how dependent on that income are you and how much of that income is used for your daily sustenance. To make it cut and dry, a lot of people think, All right, what if my electricity went off and it didn't come back on for six months or a year due to a major EMP and it took them that long to put things back together? What would I do if my electricity was cut off? They start buying backup power, and there's nothing wrong with that. We're going to get to why that's a good thing here in a minute. But let me ask you a different question. What happens if I cut your income off tomorrow to zero? There is no money for you. And what most people think is it won't matter because we're in a societal collapse because everybody else's income has gone too because it's a financial collapse. But what if everybody else doesn't run out of money? What if everybody else's flow doesn't stop? Isn't that what just happened? How many people, their flow was either cut down or cut off during this recession, but their neighbor's income didn't get cut off? So the whole road warrior fantasy bullshit didn't happen, did it? 
So when we start with the financial system, remember, order of probability. That's why I opened the show with it today. We've got to start there. What is the most probable way that the system will fail? Will it fail for everybody? Will it fail for my state? Will it fail for my county? Will it fail for my city? Will it fail for my neighborhood? Or will it most likely fail for me first? And the reality is you first. So when we look at our dependence on the financial system, what we should be saying is if every dollar were cut off tomorrow, how long could we go and maintain our, our, our current standard of living before we ended up on the streets or we ended up in irreparable damage? So if you don't have money to pay the mortgage on your house and you don't pay your mortgage this month, you will not be evicted on the 31st day, you know, the, you know, the first of the next month. You won't be evicted probably by the end of the second month. In some states, you might be looking at being whipped out within four to six months. In some states, it might be a year. But at what point has the mortgage gone underwater enough to where you can't fix it anymore? Even if you got your income back, you can't fix it. Even if you get your income back and some money, the, the bank's like, we're in proceedings now. We don't want you to fix it. It's done. And now you're out of a house and you can't buy another one. You have to look at things critically that way. And if the answer is, if you can't go at least 90 days, then almost everything else that you should be doing as a prepper gets tabled until you can. Now, there's little inexpensive things like documentation packages and inexpensive things that can help you out and start copy canning and have some food because the food is as much a reserve as the money is. So anything that creates a reserve that extends that time off the financial system is okay. So I don't care if you have enough money to buy 90 days worth of food or you have 90 days worth of food and enough money for everything else. I actually prefer the second one. So we can do things like store our food and we don't have to go out and buy Mountain House. We can, we can buy the food that we eat every day so that when dad loses his job, Jimmy can sit down and have macaroni and cheese still if that's what you want to feed your kids. I don't like feeding kids mac and cheese, but they like it and I understand why you do it. Okay? So we got to start there with the financial system. Understand when I say the financial system, I'm talking about the ability to do business. Credit is highly tied to that in our economy. Credit creates the money, but for you as an individual, it's about a cash flow situation. How much money has to come in? How much money has to go out? How do I create a delta in my favor instead of in the favor of somebody else and avoid Credit and avoid debt. That's how you avoid debt. How can I live without debt? You, you spend less money than you earn. As soon as you do that, you can live without debt. There's some practical considerations like a mortgage on a home. That's a debt I'm comfortable with. In some situations, debt on a car, which bought smart, you're not stupid, you don't pay more than you should, and you are going to own the car for longer than it takes to pay the loan off, okay. That's it. And there should be no other debt in your life. If it is, you should be eliminating it. Even with the car debt, that should be eliminated as fast as possible. What you'll find if you drive a vehicle for 10 years instead of five, once you've paid off one, it becomes very easy to start buying cars that are two or three years old in very good shape and paying cash for them whenever you actually get to a replacement time in your life. It's hard to believe because our society doesn't function that way today, but it actually works. Trust me, I've done it. been there. So financial system, highly dependent on the financial system. In fact, almost all of our needs are acquired today through the financial system. And I just hope that today I've conveyed to you that financial collapse doesn't necessarily mean something like a la the, the fan fiction novel, what is it, Patriots, that James Rawls wrote. 
financial collapse is you just watched one. You're sitting in the, in the middle of one. You're experiencing it right now. If it was twice as bad, it would suck a lot worse, and there would still be plenty of people paying their bills and doing what they're supposed to do, and when you didn't pay your bills, somebody would eventually come and throw you out. And you'd still have to go into a functioning society. Very, very important that we, we comprehend that component of the financial system. So the biggest way that we become independent of the financial system is, one, we build up reserve finance. We have money. And then we don't freak out and go, Jack, I'm afraid of inflation. You put the money in a freaking bank or in your mattress if you want to or a safe deposit. I don't care what you do with it. Hold money. Use money. That's what people take. If we get to a point where the, the, we're going to actually have the type of collapse that a lot of people are freaking out about it, there will be signs, there will be signals, and there will be time for you to dump your money while everybody else pretends it's not happening. For now, money is very, very important, so we need money. Two, we need multiple streams of income. We have to start thinking like entrepreneurs in our life, even if we're not a business owner. What can I do to create a positive cash flow situation in any scenario that I can come up with? That's another one. Number three, we need to reduce our spending and our expenses. We can spend lots of money if we're eliminating debt. Once the debt's eliminated, that money that was being used to eliminate debt needs to go into generating reserves. This is how we get financial independence. We get it by creating wealth. And wealth means we invest the money into systemic things that support us so that we're independent from the system. Wealth is we have systems that produce income for us. Wealth is we have a surplus of income and a reserve. That's wealth. All the other crap that you've been convinced is wealth. Having the Mercedes and the yacht, that's not wealth. That's a very wealthy person choosing how they spend their wealth. Wealth is defined this way. How many days forward can you survive if your income's cut off? How much wealth do you have? That's how you build wealth. The next one is the debt system. Now, the debt system creates massive dependence, and it makes developing financial independence almost impossible when you use debt, especially at the consumer level. Debt in a business has a place when it's properly managed and run because the business itself is building asset value. It's just like a house in some ways. That's why I'm okay with debt on a house. Debt on a house can be leveraged properly insanely to acquire ownership of something you otherwise could not own that actually has lasting value. right? So when you go out and you buy an iPod on credit and three years later it's outdated, obsolete, and nobody at the pawn shop even wants it for you, That's not an asset. That's not an investment. But a home, how many 30, 40, 50-year-old homes are still quite serviceable and people still live in them and love them? There's homes that are 80 years old that people would rather buy than homes that were built yesterday because they're built with that solid build that they did 80 years ago. They're built with oak instead of pine. So a home makes sense with that. Almost nothing else does. Even your car. The only reason I'm okay with it is I understand in certain scenarios... There's certain levels of, of, of a car that you have to have for safety and transportation. So, and it's also an investment. It gets you to and from work so you can make money. And if you have a long commute or something, you don't want to be in a piece of crap that could die on the side of the road. If you have a bit, a job where you have to drive for your job, like a sales job or something, you need a decent car if you undertake. So there's, there's places where the car becomes an investment as well, but it's a declining asset. It's not just that cars depreciate in a bad market, like houses depreciate in a bad market, because houses appreciate in good markets. They go up in value, too. Cars never go up in value. They don't. Not unless you have, like, you know, a Shelby 350 Cobra or something like that. And those cars that are worth so much money today, trust me, 
the people that own them have put every penny that they could ever get by selling it into them to keep them that way. It's just it's just a reality. You know, you'd say, well, that car originally sold for six thousand dollars, and today they're worth six hundred. The classic car is not a place to make a lot of money unless you're running the shop that sells the service to restore the cars to the people that have the obsession. So nothing that we spend our money on with debt should be anything other than an investment. So it's either a car, we accept the de decline in the asset value because it gives us the ability to earn income, it's a tool, or it's a home. And otherwise, if you have debt, it better be in a business and it better be very smart and be very well managed. Now, how are people dependent on the debt system? Let's say you've paid your house off. You're not just debt-free except for the house. You're debt-free. And you say, well, I'm not dependent on the debt system at all. Well, you kind of are. You probably work and you probably have an income. Your income is probably tied to people that spend money. Many of the people spending that money are part of the debt system. If they didn't have a credit card, they wouldn't be able to spend their money. There would be less commerce, there would be less economy, and you'd have less money. That's just one way. The other thing is that our money is created by debt. So since that's the case, if there wasn't any debt, there wouldn't be any money. So if the debt system fails, it's going to cause a financial system failure, and hopefully you're prepared with wealth. And remember, wealth is not just measured in dollars. It's measured in your ability to survive a given number of days forward. And so I get proper credit. That was actually said in a patent by Buckminster Fuller and a patent for the geodesic dome. Right? I don't, he, this is, he was a kind of a weird, obsessive genius. And he would put things like that that really, you know, and I guess maybe that made sure that it was forever credited to him or something. But it's the ability to survive forward. The next system that I think people like just kind of gloss over is a distribution system. I mean, I want you to think about this. If you eat a salad tonight and you go out to the store, and I don't care if it's organic or not, and you buy lettuce, especially um, in the summer when it's harder to grow lettuce in the United States versus now when it's this is a good time for lettuce growers. But if you go buy it in August when it's blazing hot, there's a good chance that that lettuce came from somewhere like Argentina where they have winter when we have summer. And some little guy in Argentina owns a field and runs a farm and he has a bunch of people working for him. And then, you know, Jose, we'll just give a person a random common Hispanic name, goes out to the field and, and picks lettuce. And then he gives it to, you know, I don't know, Dan. No reason there can't be a Dan in Argentina who drives a truck and trucks that lettuce up to an assembly point, And then it goes to a major distributor in Argentina uh, in a big warehouse with lots of other lettuce from lots of other growers. And then it goes on a plane. And then the plane flies thousands and thousands and thousands of miles and lands somewhere like Dallas, Texas or Los Angeles or somewhere, one of the many big, giant international ports of call to bring lettuce into the country. And then it goes into a major warehouse distribution system and it goes into trucks and trains and maybe more planes and gets distributed all across the United States into local warehouses. And then from that local warehouse, it's distributed to your grocery store. And then you think, well, that's the distribution system. That is pretty complex. And there are a lot of places where we could have failure. Like if Argentina completely financially collapsed instead of partly financially collapsed, maybe they would be keeping their lettuce and we don't get any. So that could go from all the way from the beginning and anywhere in the middle could fail. But there's another part of the distribution system. You. You are part of your own distribution system. Your ability to acquire the lettuce for your salad tonight If you're dependent on the distribution system, requires that you have a means of transportation. You're able to go do the final piece of distributing from the store to your home. That requires money. That requires transportation. That requires, you know, it requires energy. So there's the distribution system. So how can we begin to create independence in the distribution system? Grow the lettuce in your backyard. 
then your distribution system is what? About 30 steps and a knife. Doesn't that make sense? Given that lettuce is one of the easiest damn things in the world that anybody could grow, and even though what I said about the summer, there are varieties that do fairly well even in the summer, and there's other substitutes that do better in the summer. Given that lettuce is so simple to grow, could we not at least just take the lettuce from the distribution system that we're dependent on and move it to the independent system that we can control? Because even the guy that has a balcony on the patio can grow lettuce in a pot. And probably grow enough lettuce in a few containers to provide all the lettuce that he needs. Now that might only be 1% or even a quarter of a percent of his dependence on the distribution system. But it's a start. And remember what we start with, the individual. So when, when dad loses his job, and we can still put the salad on the table without going to the grocery store, maybe we need to dig into the savings to buy the, the, the meat and the potatoes, but at least the salad's covered. We've started. And you look at something like lettuce. It seems so ridiculous that it can make a big difference in your life. It's not got high caloric value. It's got some nutrition, especially when you grow yourself. There's some nutritional value there, but it's not that. I mean, you can pop a Flintstones kid's vitamin and you get plenty of nutrition if you really needed it. Pretty cheap. But it tastes good. It is really a great thing to eat. It goes good with anything else. Salad is an American staple for a reason. Have you looked at the price of lettuce in the grocery store? Especially if you want mixed varieties with some baby spinach in there and some other greens and some endive and something like that. You can grow all that stuff. It's all You might as well call the whole damn thing lettuce generically if you want to. It all grows the same way. It all works the same way. You prepare it the same way, and it's good. Go buy one little bag. It's four or five bucks. Do that four or five times a week. Twenty bucks a week. Eighty bucks a month in lettuce. You know some people are spending 80 bucks a month in lettuce? You might be. Look at your receipt. If you've got a family with four or five kids and you do salad at every meal and you don't grow anything else, I bet you're spending more than 80 bucks a month on lettuce. 80 bucks? Gee, what can we do with 80 bucks? We could put it away. It's a great financial dependence. From lettuce. Sounds stupid. What's stupid is if more people don't do it. Let's start adding some other stuff in on that distribution system. What about an apple? The apple that gets sprayed with chemicals that's transported from Washington State to you in Georgia. What if you planted an apple tree? Maybe it would take four or five years for your own system to develop sufficient infrastructure. Right? The infrastructure to get the apple from Washington State to you in Georgia involves planes, trains, automobiles, energy, and electricity, and petroleum. The infrastructure to get the apple to your living room from your backyard involves roots, branches, and nutrients in your soil. So you might have to actually build your infrastructure, which is the tree itself, because your distribution portion is you pull the apple off the tree and take it in the house. But isn't it worth the investment of 20 bucks in the tree instead of 20 bucks for a, a Bradford flowering pear that will never produce anything for you? Oh, and by the way, is a crappy tree and will probably fall on your house uh, in about 15 years of growth and the first good storm, even if you prune it the way that it's supposed to be pruned. Which one's worth more investing in? Which one gives you some, some independence from the distribution system? See, the distribution system's not just about agriculture. It's just, we're going to go to agriculture next, and it's one of the easiest places to make a difference. But the distribution system also brings you your light bulbs, your candles, your, your soap, everything in your home that you didn't make by hand 
including the raw materials, came through a distribution system. The iPod you're listening to me on right now, or the computer you're listening to me on right now, when you sit down and veg out for an hour or two tonight and watch TV, the TV came there with the distribution system. The cable or satellite service is part of the distribution. It's distribution of information. The TV show they made to entertain you required massive amounts of the distribution system to get the, the costumes and the materials and the props and every the actors to work in back every day. This is all distribution. You realize how massive the distribution system is. And let me tell you something. That's not all bad. The larger and more complex the system is, the more points of failure it has, but the more points of failure it can sustain if it's not a linear relationship. And fortunately for us, our distribution system is not built linear, linearly. It's not a direct one-off. If Jose fails in Argentina, then, you know, then, then his, his brother Tom, Tom Lopez, right? Tom Lopez's lettuce farm, uh, steps in. And if Argentina fails, there's other places we can grow lettuce. So the, the distribution system is not on the verge of collapse at all, but It gets more and more expensive to move things through. If, if Joe and, and Jose want to raise for picking lettuce in Argentina, it goes all the way through the distribution system. And then when fuel prices go up, it goes all the way through the distribution system. And when the union guy that drives the forklift that takes it off of the ship or the plane in New York City wants to raise, it goes all the way through the distribution system. So the distribution system, it's not so much that it creates failures, but it's a huge component of the thing we call inflation. Because inflation is one, money going down in value, but two, costs going up. It's both sides of that, that sword. And the cost going up side is directly proportional to the inputs required to get something distributed. So we have to think about that. So one of the best ways that we can become independent of the distribution system is to produce things for ourselves, Or acquire what we need now, and when we do it, buy something that works for the rest of our lives instead of something that works until next year. The thing I always say about durable goods, things that can be things that you can one day hand down to your son, and maybe he can even hand down to your grandson that are expensive, they're only expensive one time. They're expensive the day you buy them, and they're priceless from that point forward. That's where to spend big money. And when I say big money, I don't mean necessarily a lot of money, but comparatively. Okay, you can go buy a 50-foot garden hose for $9. You will cuss it in a month and throw it away in a year. You can go buy a 50-foot garden hose for $70 that as long as you take it in or keep it on a coil or something like that, you'll be able to cut a piece off and beat somebody with it uh, 70 years from now. It's up to you. One's expensive once. One creates a recurring expense over time and doesn't do the job well. And a hose is just an easy example of that. That's where I talk about always be frugal, never be cheap. Cheap is always expensive in the end. Frugality pays dividends across your lifetime. So be frugal, not cheap. That's one of the best ways to start to develop independence from the distribution system. The next one is the agricultural system. And I've already explained it pretty well, but I, I don't think that, you know, I want to start now examining how you're dependent even when you're not. Okay, so the agricultural system feeds people. So if there were agricultural systemic failures that reduced the amount of food that was available significantly to where people were really hungry in America, not just because they didn't have money, because the food wasn't there, but you had lots of food in your backyard, don't you think you become kind of a target? I'm not saying that. And then people say, well, I don't want a garden because, you know, shut up and grow your food. All right? Really? 
Because you're a target for breathing in some of the environments these guys are worried about it. The fact that you exist makes you a target. But don't you think that, okay, and, and I mean, even if you were to keep your food safe, don't you think that like your, your existence is going to be not quite as happy as it used to be? Do you think it's going to be a little bit more dangerous for you to go places and do things? So what you start having to understand is that even when you say, well, I don't have any debt, But, okay, what if, what if other people's debt explodes to sufficiently damage you? How many people bought a house they could afford, kept their job, still have their job, but have decided now I don't want to live where I am today. I want to go somewhere else. And they can't. They're trapped in their house. Because other people's financial and debt problems drove down the price of housing in their neighborhood, and they bought a $150,000 house, They've been paying on it for five years, so they owe like $146,500 now. And the value of that house is now $120,000, and they just can't afford to lose $25,000 on the home and go try to buy a new house. They just can't afford it. Even if they have the $25,000 in their pocket, they're going to walk out with nothing, and now they don't have a down payment for the next house. So they manage their debt properly. They manage their income properly. Did they, you could, the, um, that person, if we shut off the income for them, they can go 90 days until they find a new source of income and survive because they've got the 25 grand. But they can't get out of the house. So they are dependent on the debt system, even though they're not really dependent directly. The, the debt is still, the personal debt's still their problem. Now, if that person had paid their house off, they might not like the fact that they'll only get 120 when they sell, but they walk away from the house with 120 versus zero. Now they have options. But even in that scenario, where are you going to go? If there's a big debt problem, it may be very difficult. Let's say you have 120 cash now, but you want to buy a house for uh, $200. And it's responsible to do because you only have to take an $8,000 mortgage. You have a good income. In some places, because maybe you lost a job and got a new job. Maybe you, maybe you got a new job in two weeks. You're that marketable, but you had this, the career change. Now the bank won't give you the 80 grand, even though you're standing there with 120. So now you got to settle for a $120,000 house. See, there's always this interconnection. The distribution system begins to break down for some reason. Even if you're well looked after, is it not possible it causes riots in your city and your neighborhood? See, that's where the stuff starts to interconnect. As we move further out, less probability, but greater impact. I won't go too much more on the agricultural system because I think I, I've covered it well with the distribution system. Obviously, the more we can produce for ourselves, the less dependent we are on the agricultural system. We can also reduce our dependence on the agricultural and distribution systems by doing what, though? By storing food. So storing food doesn't just help us financially. It doesn't just help us with the debt. It helps us with systemic failures in the distribution or agricultural systems because we can just simply wait it out. Because most of those failures will not be the end of the world. They'll be two weeks, three weeks in duration. So if I have 90 days and there's a three-week dry spell where everybody's panicking and freaking out and I can just wait it out, I'm a lot better off now, aren't I? We're also very, very dependent on the energy system. The energy system is one of the systems that, if it were to fail, it could literally destroy all the other systems at the same time. Most of the other systems are, are completely dependent upon it. So we'll get the uh, the doomsday prepper that's been uh, kind of marketed the way you market a, a, a wrestler. You know, they give them an identity and a false persona and, and say, I'm preparing for peak oil and there'll be no oil left. Well, that's, that's probably not how a, a energy uh, an energy systemic failure would happen. 
It would probably be that, oh, I don't know, a couple countries go to war and a few countries stop selling you oil and then somebody embargoes this and that and now there's 20% less oil for six months. That's an energy failure. Uh, it might be that some kind of storm comes through a place called the Gulf of Mexico and it's worse than uh, Katrina and Rita this time and it doesn't really do so much damage to the land but it just completely wipes out a tremendous number of offshore drilling rigs. Or they just have to shut down for two weeks and that creates a blip in the supply line. We have these things called strategic reserves but when we exceed that, right, these are all energy failures. Energy failures are the long-term failure of the dollar to keep pace with the cost of energy and your electric bill that used to be $75 in some cities is now $200 and you're not using more, you're using less. The person went in and put those stupid CFLs in and they did a little tiny bit. They went in and put a more efficient hot water heater in. They've done all the things that they're supposed to do. More insulation, radiant, radiant barrier. Uh, maybe they even went and bought a couple consumer level uh, plug into the grid solar panels up on the roof and they're using half the energy they used to and paying double what they used to pay because energy rates keep going up. The cost of living keeps going up. That's energy failure for you as an individual. Remember, who's the most likely person to be affected by a disaster? The individual. When your electric bill used to be $75 and now it's $300, that's a problem. It directly impacts your dependence on the financial and debt systems. So those are energy failures that are much more subtle, much more insidious, and we, we don't think of them. They don't make great Hollywood movies. You can't make a Hollywood movie where the guy comes home, Honey, look at how high our electric bill is. We're going to have to buy the generic food from now on. That doesn't make a great movie, does it? Now, I think if you got creative, I could make a creative, entertaining, and educational movie like that. But I don't think Hollywood's interested in that. So we have to make the story about the sun exploding. You know, or we have to make this, uh, the, uh, the, the documentary where the oil wells just go simultaneously everywhere. All of them just stop pumping for some reason. All the oil's just gone. Or the oil just starts to dry up to a point where there's so little of it left, it might as well be gone. And, and nobody can figure out how natural gas works for some reason. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, there, there's plenty of redundancy and resiliency in the energy system. The, Peak oil will occur, but it's probably not going to look anything like anybody talking about it says. It was a very long spiral. It's not a quick slam. It's just, it's just not how things work. But it doesn't mean there's not failures there. It doesn't mean you don't have a tremendous amount of independence. So how do we break free of our, our dependence on the energy system? Well, solar and wind are a start. They may not be the best option for you, though. They're not very efficient. But we can start by doing all the stuff that the guys whose build still double did, Because if he did, instead of being going from 75 to 200, it'd now be 400. And not, no, folks, I'm not talking about your electricity bill going up that fast in a year or two. But if you look at what people paid for electricity in 1985 versus today, that's what's happened to people. That's what's happened over time. Hey, those guys that, that, that go out there and work on those poles and risk getting electrocuted in a storm, they need to be paid, and they need to be able to afford all the other things that went up. So they get a raise, and, and, the, and the cost of delivering the energy goes up, and guess what? Power generation, oil exploration, all of this stuff, it adds up. They don't just raise the prices because they want to. I mean, in some areas, that's what they're doing. But the reality is, in most places, the reason prices go up is there's no other choice. The value of the money declines. The cost has to go up. That's how the economy runs. It's designed. Your government and your Federal Reserve, which are not the same thing, we'll go into that today, but they're not, want inflation. 
Do you know they want inflation? They need it. They need about 2% steady inflation rate. That's their dream. That's their nirvana. You know, that's what they, that's what they, they, they fantasize about is a perfect 2.1% inflation rate. I guess everything going the right direction. Devaluing the money, devaluing the debt the government holds, screwing the American people with a backdoor tax. The inflation tax is the most insidious tax out there. They need it. Well, that means that you're going to pay more for energy and everything else that goes with it. And as energy goes up in expense, so do all the other costs of all the other systems. And then the energy system is something you're completely dependent upon as well for the stability of society. Let's say you did it. You built the earth ship with everything. And you have your batteries and your solar panels and your efficiency. And you are zero dependent on the energy system. That's great. That's a wonderful way to live. I hope to be there someday. But that doesn't mean I'm not dependent on the rest of the energy system. Let's say you have a solar-powered car. You've souped up a golf cart. It takes you where you need. I mean, you, you personally just go, I don't give a damn. Yeah, you do. Because what happens to society if they shut off the lights? What happens to society if gas goes up to $14 a gallon? Think it sounds ridiculous? $14 a gallon gas? Sounds ridiculous, right? Let me ask you a question. How ridiculous did $4 a gallon gas sound in 1985? $4.50. $4.99. How ridiculous did that sound in, oh, I don't know, let's say about 1996. I remember in 96-ish, uh, 95, 96, I was working a lot in Houston where gas was super cheap because they were like refined it and just brought it across the street in a bucket and dumped it in the tank. Metaphor, guys, it's not really what happened. I'm not that naive. Um, but it was. I remember paying like 88, 89 cents a gallon for gas in Houston in around, around mid-90s. How ridiculous would it seem to have told somebody then, hey, you know what, you better watch out for $4.50 a gallon gas. Anybody shocked by that number? I mean, gas has come back off of that since it was up that high, but would you be shocked? Does that seem impossible now? The gas could cost that much. So why do you think it can't double again? I mean, think about going from 80 cents to four bucks. That's more than four times increase. What's four times four, folks? 16 bucks. Why can't it happen again? Of course it can. What does $16 gas do to the economy? What does it do to your dependence on your financial and debt system, even if you, even if you provide your own energy? How is it interconnected? You see, this is why we prepare because it is so interconnected. And it doesn't make society stop. It shifts society. It changes society. And in some ways, it may change society for the better. $16 gas is a pretty good reason to get serious about alternative energy sources. But they cannot do in their current form what fossil fuels can. They cannot do it. Anybody that tells you they can is full of crap. Now, I'm not saying they can never do it. But in their current form, if we tripled what they're capable of, they can't do it. If we tripled it. So we have this dependence, the health system, the health care system. Hugely dependent. Hugely dependent. The, the, the nation as a whole, I'm saying now. Some of you are, are like me. You look after yourself and you don't really see a doctor very often. Some of you that do that are probably better off than people that have working relationships with their doctor and are on 20 different medications that are destroying your body in 20 different ways. And 19 of them exist because of a chain reaction started with the first one. But there's a lot of people that need health care just flat out. i got to have it. Well, what can, what can cause a health care failure? Well, you know, any of the financial energy distribution cycles alone can cause it. But another thing that can cause it, even if every we don't lose a single doctor or nurse, they're all there. 
They're all, all the systems in place. They're, they're, we, we, utopian Obamacare. Everybody gets health care. Right? And, and people don't even abuse it. Let's, let's just get ridiculous now. They, everybody gets free health care. It's not free. Everybody pays $150 a month for insurance. That's it because of flat fee, and that entails you go to any hospital, any doctor, anywhere, and get care. And it works. I can still break it. I can break it without destroying the energy, agriculture, distribution, or debt, or financial system. It's called a pandemic. How quick will the health system fail if you just exceed the total number of doctors, nurses, and hospital beds with illness that is life-threatening. It, it'll sink like that. It'll still be there. They'll still be doing what they can, but how, how much does it help you when you're in the back of the line and the line is now a day long and the illness kills you in nine hours? Now, you might as well just eat a bullet if it's a bad enough disease at that point, right? Now, that's the extreme. But we need to look at both the extreme and the mundane if we're going to be properly prepared. So, Moving along to wrap this up today, Another system I have on my list here is the welfare system. And like I said, a lot of you folks think, I'm not dependent on the welfare system. Hell, I, the welfare system is dependent upon me. My taxes pay for the welfare. Jack, don't tell me I'm dependent on welfare. Really? Um, in Atlanta last year, there was a hiccup with food stamps. And the people on the food stamps went 48 hours without getting their food stamps. They weren't told you're never getting your food stamps. They said, there's a mistake, we'll, pay, we'll give you your food stamps on Wednesday. They almost rioted. They were gathered around and they were screaming, my child needs to eat today. Come on now, right? I'm already giving you free food. You can't keep a couple days of food in the house? They almost rioted over a two-day delay in their food stamps. I'm not saying the government didn't screw that up. I'm just saying, what does that tell you? What would Los Angeles look like if people that were on welfare were told, this month, there isn't any. We, we've had a financial failure nationally to the point where we can't print the welfare checks. You're just not getting it. Uh, we'll get it to you next month. But that month has never come. You're not getting it back. We just, this is what we have to do to get by. You're just going to have to survive for a month without it. Think Rodney King riots sunk L.A.? What do you think L.A. would look like in that scenario? How... Many people would snap their gasket. And what if it wasn't just L.A. and L.A. County that couldn't pay welfare for a month? What if it was nationally? What would that look like? Now, is that likely? No, because they'll just print the money and give it to them. I mean, that's the reality. They'll print because they, because, because they know. But if the welfare system does begin to fail, what does it do to society as a whole? Uh, I think that's a lot more likely to create Mad Max then a solar flare, people will go nuts because there are so many people in various aspects of the welfare system that have been multi-generational on welfare for so long, they look at it as being paid. They think it's their job to be on welfare. And I'm not putting down individuals here. I'm putting down the system that created this. I mean, the reality is the welfare system needs to be completely deconstructed. Welfare reform under a Republican uh, Congress and Bill Clinton was a decent start, but it really, really failed to go where it needed to go. And today there's more people on this stuff than ever. And if you're on some form of assistance, I'm not putting you down. One in seven Americans are on food stamps today at some level. One in seven. What happens if all of that gets cut off? 
There's a high degree of dependence there, even if you're not directly dependent. Don't get me wrong. I'm not pointing a hopeless picture. I'm telling you, if you have a good financial stability, good debt stability, you've reduced your dependence on the distribution and agricultural systems, you've got some energy independence going on, you can't afford what you're buying, you take good care of yourself, you've got good health, and uh, you, you have a, you know either money or insurance for the health care you need, uh, and the welfare system uh, fails, you are definitely better off than the other people around you. But you still got a problem, don't you? And then the last one is the military-industrial complex system. And this is, this is where I think people don't really understand how big of a component of our economy the military-industrial complex is. I'm not talking about Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines as a unit. Uh, that's a huge piece of it as well. But I'm talking about the people that build all the stuff that they sell to those departments. The guns, the missiles, the bombs, the airplanes, the trucks. That, that industry is the single largest industry in the world. And I think it's bigger than it needs to be. I don't think we need to spend $800 billion a year on defense. And I'm not sure what the new number is, but it's probably about that. I know the last time I actually researched it, it was over $600 billion. We outspend every other uh, modern nation in the world combined on defense. But let's just look at it this way. Let's say that we all came to our collective agreement and said, yeah, we need to cut that back. How far do we cut it back before we plunge the nation into a recession? You think the automotive industry is going, going up, uh, going down in any way, helped cause and fuel a recession and make things worse? They're, they pale in comparison to the military-industrial complex. So... It, it's a two-edged, a two-headed monster, then, isn't it? The bigger we make it, the more power that it has, and the smaller we make it, the more we have to figure out what to do with the people that no longer work there. They're going to work somewhere else. What are they going to do? You know, you think about it this way. I talked about fast food recently. Let's say we close down every McDonald's. How many independent business owners does that put out of a of a job? How many employees does that take away? Now, it's not necessarily saying that like McDonald's is great or anything, but they employ a lot of people, don't they? Walmart, everything's Walmart's evil. Largest single employer in America, Walmart. Largest employer in America, Walmart. Employs more human beings than any other single company in the nation. Over a million. Oh, Walmart's evil. Let's go back. How many people that work at Walmart are qualified to work in that little shop that we nostalgically wax about, uh, to have enough knowledge to, to bring that back. Very few. That's a problem, too. But we really have to think about the fact that there's these major sources of employment, and the biggest one out there is the mill, mill industrial complex. And it enables Walmart. It enables McDonald's. It enables Joe's Drug Emporium. It enables Joe the Plumber. Because when you are a business person, one thing you have to have to have a successful business is customers. And those customers don't pay you with looks. right? They don't have good, you know, hey, you're a nice looking guy, let me fix your sink. Don't work that way. You can't turn around and go, uh, yeah, electric company, I'll pay my electric bill with the looks that were given to me by Frank when I fixed the sink. No, you need money. Well, Frank has to have a job, so he has money to pay you. I know this sounds basic. But it's so easy to look at these big companies and big things like the mill complex and go, oh, we got to get rid of that without understanding the consequences of that. Let's cut government spending in half. I'm all for it. Do you know what it's going to do to the economy? Long-term, great things. Short-term, terrible things. 
We have to make transitions. We need to be making transitional plans. And I think that's the biggest, the biggest reason that we're so dependent on these systems. There is no comprehensive transitional plan in place to move society to another layer because all the people that are controlling the system now don't want transition. They don't want a new job. They don't want to lose the money they have. They don't want to lose the control that they have. And they're all holding on to it. They're actually holding the progress of society back. That's why the best way to, to, to progress forward today, make your own way and the others will follow, folks. Create your independence from these systems. Grow your own food. Produce your own energy. Provide your own security. Live debt-free. Build up your financial reserve. Create your own little fiefdom, right? Your own little kingdom. This is my freaking kingdom. This is the land of Jack Spiritofield, and if you don't like it, get the hell out. That's how we have to live our lives. I will live beside you. I will live with you. I will work with you. I will embrace you as my neighbor. I will help you when you fall down. But when it comes down to it, I'm calling my shots, and if you don't like it, tough shit. We used to have a word for people like that. You know what we called them? Americans. That was the America. That was the American in, in 1900. That's how most Americans were. I am independent. I'm self-reliant. I'm highly self-sufficient. I am part of society by choice, not by need. And I contribute to society by choice, not by requirement. I am not a prisoner. I am a free man breathing free air on free soil. That's systemic independence. But you have to see the monster for what it is, both it's good and it's bad. I think it's great that my friend came into town, drove a truck built in Detroit by Chrysler Dodge, came up to my house, drove up a road built by government, put fuel in a truck that was pumped out of the ground somewhere in the Gulf of Mexico probably and sold to him by Exxon. Arrived at my home, got in my big diesel that was a big diesel Ford, rode with me up to my office, I think it's great that when we went home, we stopped and we picked up a bottle of wine from France and a bottle of wine from Spain and went home and had a couple beautiful bottles of red wine, sat around the table and talked business and friendship. And that this system that I'm calling a monster enabled all of that to occur. I think that's a wonderful component of that system. I think the system isn't the problem. The, the way that we plug into the system like Neo into the Matrix And we are allowing ourselves to be milked like cows by government and taxes and chained to a floor by employers because we do it mindlessly is the problem. That's what makes it a monster. It's designed to put you to sleep. You can use the system, but you better stay awake. It's like a donut. Occasionally, if you eat a donut, I do it's fine. They taste good. There's nothing like a fresh, warm donut and a cup of coffee. But if you do it every single day, you start to put X's on your shirt size and you get fat. Now you're dependent on the healthcare system and you don't have any money because you're spending it all on donuts and medication because of the donuts. And now you have financial problems. And you're overpaying for the coffee that you buy with the donut by two bucks a cup. So now you're going further in it. It just cascades. So you eat the donut once a month, it's a big difference than eating four or five donuts a day. And God help you if you eat a dozen of them a day. And them damn Krispy Kremes, you could do it. Right? It might make you sick. Once you get like cigarettes make you sick. You smoke a pack a day, though, once you get used to them, and it's not even enough anymore. They're addictive. There's so many things in the system like that. We cannot eat unconsciously without getting fat. And we can't use the system unconsciously without being dependent upon it. 
We have to see the places we're dependent as being acceptable places. Because we have redundancy in case we have failure there. We have to understand that society runs on that dependence. But that doesn't mean that we have to do. We can make our own way. And the more of us that do, the more people will follow. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another episode of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Show you.